previously on Eyeball. In a world where a man and his son's creativity is put against the darkness of the internet. This is Eyeball and I am your host, John Lewis, and today we get right back into it with our good friend, Timothy Archibald, photographer and educator extraordinaire out of San Francisco, California. We left you at a perilous moment. Today we wrap up with part two discussing criticism, gatekeepers, when things fall apart, and teaching. Sure, and that's a very real deal. I mean, you know, Sally Mann gets hit with all the kid nudity stuff, even though it's her kids and they're, you know, on her own private land. I don't understand what people are talking about, but you know, that's, that's always been a part of the conversation with her with Eli. It didn't, I don't know. Maybe it, I'm not the kind of person who ever could be struck that way by it. So I just, you know, I can't see it for that. Was the reactions heavily in that direction? No, in the beginning more so. I mean, the project has gotten a lot of attention years after that. And it's almost like at some point the tide turned and it almost turned almost in a way overly romanticized. You know what I mean? Like at one point, I think someone sent me a note and it was like, you know, some clickbait type of story, like loving dad, you know, captures autistic kid or something like that. And it was uh, it was something that was just overly simplified and overly romantic and didn't really relate to the reality of the situation at all. And so, I mean, the one thing is I respect all opinions. And if something offends someone or if they feel it's exploitative, well, then maybe it is to them. That's okay. You know, when I had done that Project Sex Machines, there was a lot of challenges in the yeah. public with that. And I think I you know, got... I, I never, I really never thought about the connective tissue between those two things. And there is some. Yeah, and I think that it allowed me to, with sex machines, I was hurt when people were saying this shouldn't be <laughs> wherever it is, you know, in ad agencies or whatever we were doing with it. Mostly in truck stop bathrooms. That's where that was published mostly, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yes. But <laughs> with Eli's project, I just had a, a tougher skin and I think I, I was more willing to accept that not everybody's going to be into what you're into, you know? There even was a time Emory University had a show of the work, and then they had Eli and I come in and do a bunch of different talks, and they were like, well, we want you to come to the ethics department. <laughs> and I'm like, this is going to be a disaster. Like, Jeez. And actually, it, it was excellent. And it was like a discussion of like, well, is this exploitative or is this not? And does it matter? And I kind of took the stance that sometimes things are exploitative, and you, you don't know until years later. Like it was a chance I had to take years later. There is a chance that the subject of the photos could come out and say, oh, I'm not comfortable with these, you know? Yeah. You had to let time tell really. And that would be okay. And that would be true for them. If, yeah. you know, in years later, whatever pictures I'm making of my kids today, they don't like how they were photographed and they feel exploited by them. That will be true too. I think it's bullshit. And I won't be upset about it in any way because it's just ridiculous. What's more important to me than any picture is my, obviously, the emotional health of my kids. However, we are living in, you know, the most gray subjective period ever. But there are some things that are still true and false. And 
I, you know, I don't know. This podcast is not a great place for any safe space bubble people uh, in general. The sum total of that project to me is probably over romantic for what you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I think what most people see now, even people who are far outside of the autistic community and have never had any first person experience with it is just a attempt at connection and a, something being built collaboratively between father and son and that unto itself. I mean, as a father myself, like I've already said, that's special. I mean, I think it's, I just think it's cool. I mean, I, I like building a castle with my son, let alone right. something that has more endurance than that. Right. I've always thought it was really beautiful work. I always think it's really beautiful work. And I think it is really amazing to have this document in the tiniest. And I don't, this in, in no way is comparative to what, your project is. But, you know, last year when ARP asked me as a surprise, they knew I was going down to Florida to go to Disney with my kids. And they called mm. me up and said, listen, we want you to photograph your trip. And I said, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know? Yeah. So then I asked the boss and the boss said, yes. Uh, I don't know why, but she decided that's cool or whatever. Yes. Also, I think she was like, well, it's you doing anything. I don't have, to, I don't care. I don't have to do right. anything. Yeah, sure. Fine. Now, the ultimate, you know, I got paid for it, but ultimately what I actually got paid for was I tried hard to make good pictures of my family on vacation. And we have these cool pictures of us on vacation in a way that right. we've never had before, because I've never really tried very hard to make cool pictures on vacation, except like, you know, occasionally I'll be inspired and then end up yelling at my kids because they're not doing the goddamn thing right. <laughs> that I've been trying to see in my head. Which literally yeah. happened this morning when the kids weren't jumping on the bed correctly as I found them jumping on the bed, waking up mom, which I was then <laughs> trying to scramble to shoot for the client I'm shooting for this week. Right, right. So, you know, I'm more likely to be yelling at my kids actively while I'm trying to record this moment than I am to, you know, be like, oh, isn't how beautiful my connection to my, you know, family, whatever. Yeah. This body of work now 10 years after being published in book form still in lots of ways, getting out to the world, you know, being republished in new countries all the time as the world and families all around the world are becoming more aware of people who are neurotypical. This body of work has come to mean something else and certainly has been very meaningful for them. Maybe they're looking for their own lifeboat. If all it's done is help someone understand a kid a little more or give them the tiniest bit, I mean, minutes more of patience, then you've done something which most photography never, ever does. That unto itself is amazing. Very thankful for, uh, thank you for that. I'm thankful for the role that that project has like taken on, you know, but I would say that I don't take credit for that. Like, it's not like projects you and I do that we are proud of and we can work hard to make good or something like that. That thing was something else that just kind of came or something. And then it was collaborated with him. So I don't really take credit for it. And I can't really make pictures like it, you know. And so there is something where, yeah, like I'm thankful for the path it took, but I don't really, it doesn't make me feel like I'm great or I'm smart or <laughs> any of those things. It's more like it came out and I'm psyched that it's in the world. Sure. There was a power to... You know, that feeling of like, okay, suddenly it's public and people know about it. And, you know, we would get notes that would say like, I am a therapist. Me and all my therapists at my office feel that you should not have done this, <laughs> you know? And so there's that attitude out there. 
But then there I was I wish also- I was your PR department for this. I could just send people <laughs> just eat a dick. Dr. Yeah. Loomis, you know, like good God, the gall of motherfuckers reaching out just, just to explain my opinion on what you just said. Yeah, sure. we were at a public space not very long ago with our kids. Our kid got bit by got stung by a bee. Mm-hmm. If there's anyone around who would be good at dealing with this, it's my wife who is a pediatric <laughs> doctor. So my kid is freaking out. They're crying. This person reads the situation, a pa- you know, some random public person thinking they're going to do their act for the day. And they come over and they're just interrupting or trying to help our kid. And they're like, listen, let me talk to her. I'm really good at reading kids. And my <laughs> wife looked at her, hopefully in a way that displayed, she might be the dumbest motherfucker who's ever lived. And you're like, what are you? She got stung by a bee. How the fuck are you going to read that? I would, I wish my wife had more venom in it. I'm sure my wife was so confused. at what in the hell she was talking about that she didn't have nearly enough venom for it. But the idea that anyone has any liberty to be involved in anyone else's fucking private life, especially in anything that's difficult or challenging or anything else is fucking amazing to me. <laughs> I don't know you, but here's a wildly critical comment. Oh my <laughs> Jesus Christ. Shut the fuck up. I don't care if you professionally have some skin in the game. I don't care anything at all. Now, if someone welcomes you into the university and it wants to have a frank conversation about whatever, and you've agreed to be there and you know, there, there are forums in which talking about this in a real way is important, Yeah, but yeah. send a comment on the, over the internet. Jeez, just, there's gotta be a circle <laughs> of hell for this shit. Well, okay. There's that. And then, but I think the most powerful one was like, parents would send me pictures of their kids that they took for the same reasons I took pictures like to because the kid was doing something unusual and they wanted to document it. And these photos looked exactly like any photo in my book. Like if they were, if I had post-produced them, they would look exactly like the pictures in Echolilia. Like I remember someone sent me a picture of their kid and they were like in Sweden or something. And it was the kid with no clothes on laying on a shelf that had like, you know, canned tomatoes and potatoes and different things. And then the kid was laying on the shelf naked in a domestic house. And it was like, that's exactly like something I would have shot or would have seen. Yeah. And so there was that feeling of, oh, I just did what parents all over the country are doing, but I had a nicer camera and I knew how to make it look a little prettier. Yeah. I I don't want to diminish your role here. I don't think you you, you certainly didn't have the only role in the involvement of the project, but you know, also it's funny that we're talking about the nudity with this project. I can't keep clothes on my son. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to keep clothes on any five-year-old. It doesn't matter anything else going on. My son in the dead of winter would much rather be running around the house naked. He just, he just would. Right. That's nothing to do with anything else. Anyway, I wanted to ask though about this project and the way in which these were not your pictures. Yeah. But you made them and you made them in collaboration to that. After all this, we're now 10 years past the production of the book. Has that changed or made you think about what is or are not your pictures over time? Well, I mean, the one thing I would say, like with this project is like, I I can't really take credit for it. But then that also means the other thing that I can't do it again. Like I can't like do Echolilia 2 or anything as good (laughs) as that or anything like that. No, 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 you can't do it again. But from the outside... 
your work since then has become less produced. Oh yeah. It's become more focused and simplified. The backgrounds have become cleaner. Probably there's lots of ways in which you could art historically draw some reference points from that book and the work that you now present as mostly your portfolio. I'm not saying they're in concert with each other. They're not, but there is a gradual shift as there, of course, is going to be your 10 years more experience in your career. You're doing things differently. Your back hurts more, whatever the things that have changed the way that we all end up working differently. Also the tools have changed. I mean, everything's changed above and beyond that. Is there any other ways in which the process of working on that maybe change the way you saw your photography in other ways? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, here we're talking about photography almost, almost like it's some pure thing and that I don't like make a living doing it. You know what I mean? Where we're talking about echolalia. We're really, you know, amidst this, I'm a commercial photographer who's trying to get work and trying to, you know, like please clients. And there was a point where echolalia got so much attention and became like, if you did a Google search on Timothy Archibald, you didn't see any commercial photos. All you saw was that. I do remember there was an art director who called me and said, well, we want you to do a project, but we don't really like your commercial work. We like those pictures of your son. Can you do it to look like that? And I was like, because of course I wanted the job. I was like, well, I can try, you know? Yeah. And it failed. It wasn't good. It wasn't as good, but it did make me realize that I'm going to have to figure out how to do that because that kind of, no one wants the old Timothy Archibald ironic inventor in his garage photo anymore. You know, like, they want something that feels like this other stuff. So I'm screwed because I'm 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 the old Timothy Archibald. God damn it! <laughs> now I know. Now I at least know the future. God damn it! <laughs> well, with your subject matter, I think it I think it worked. <laughs> you know, to some degree, you know, I remember that campaign you did for the phone. Maybe it was the phone. No, cell phone. The no the I, the Christmas car, the Christmas oh, yeah, sweater yeah. thing. Yeah, right. That kind of had a certain like chill vibe and like it was you know it was not heavily produced it, you know like there was a certain thing about it that felt of akin to it you started figuring out what that might look like if it was not the same yeah i did right that was all natural light i think and but that was still trying to be funny that was almost like in between where the one thing it did is <laughs> it also like it changed the types of projects people come to me with though right no of course there was a period where I was doing all these things for like Family Circle magazine or something like that, where they had a whole thing about teenagers and they had teenagers cutting themselves and teenagers with eating disorders mm -hmm. and parent teenager complications where they can't communicate. And it was all these stories on that thing. And I was always the one they would turn to for those things. And so that role as a parent and that role as having an understanding of a child who may be atypical in some way or struggling with something became the turf that people mm -hmm. like, you know, kind of came to me with. And then, yeah, it's funny. I actually shot those, you know, the teenage and relating stories and blah, blah, blah. I shot those yeah. before I had kids. I've never been assigned them again since I have kids and actually might be able to understand what's going through. I only shot them far before I had kids. I did get the feeling that, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to a photo editor, but I thought that photo editors always did identify who had kids as those who could understand kids. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm actually surprised you got that assignment. I think it was, I was in the right place. You know, it was in, that was when I was in North Carolina and I shot a ton of Reader's Digest stuff. And right. God love him. Bill Black. I don't know where Bill, where Bill is these days, but uh, 
he paid the bills for a while. He's very loved. I didn't know him, but now he's a loved, you know, creative director or photo editor. Yeah, he was. There's a there's a there's been a ton of great ones. And there's been some a few really, really shitty ones, but you know, that's just how it goes. Any sample oh. size is gonna gonna bring that up. Oh, for sure. I wanna pivot to something I saw in yet another interview where you talked about hitting the bottom and motivation. You know, after Phoenix, you moved to California where you are today. You live outside of San Francisco now. I guess you were your wife was in school. I don't know if you guys were married yet. You went to California for her to go to school and you talk about that being a tough period. And then out of that period, you pivoted into the more commercial slick production heavy part of your career. What is it about hitting bottom that you think is the ultimate motivator to change your career? (laughs) I am a big fan of rock bottoms in, in many ways. What uh, was there a quote that I had? I think I think literally your quote was something like hitting the bottom is the greatest motivator or something to that effect. <laughs> no, I do believe that. Well, I think because when things are good and when you have momentum, it's very hard to shift gears. Yeah, it's easier to stay doing what you're doing, like almost with everything. Yeah, like I think that everyone has the fantasy that they're going to transition from some form of life to another in a smooth way. And it never goes that way. I don't think. I mean, maybe people in the corporate world do. But in photography, I kind of think that everything needs to fall apart. And then then you can kind of rebuild. And sometimes people do that to themselves. You know, yeah, you don't always have to actually fall apart. You can just be thrown into a deep end somehow. Sometimes it is a change of scenery. And then suddenly you realize, oh, oh you know what? Uh, this isn't going to work. You know, when I moved to New York and... I was proud of what I had been doing for years. I, I had not moved to New York on purpose up till that. But I had moved there and the people I'm with, you know, at all the openings and parties and everything else, their work is just way more inspiring to me than my work is. And it's not just that it's theirs and not mine, but they just seem to be working harder or working smarter or working some way better than I was. Mm-hmm. It was a really clear sign to me that clearly I had not been fulfilling my end of the bargain and that's the way i take it at the time i don't think i was getting to the end of a photo shoot and i was out of ideas i was just like that's enough Mm -hmm. you know we got what they needed and instead of trying to find that chris buck surprise i was just like great well we got done early today boys let's go to the bar whatever (laughs) you know like and that was that was fine and no one was unhappy right but they also they can say no one's unhappy. That doesn't mean they're thrilled or certainly not inspired to work with me on the next big project. Yeah. It's not a surprise. I was work, mostly working on middle of the book features and, you know, I was shooting the rare that I would get a cover opportunity. My career was moving forward, but it wasn't, I wasn't in control in any way. And part of the reason was because I didn't feel invested enough and I wasn't engaged enough. And so moving to New York, I was like, fuck, this has to be bigger. It has to be better. I have to be having more fun at the same time doing this because I'm just not well enough engaged to this. And luckily I had a group of people in New York who were inspiring to do more. So I don't know if you always have to literally hit rock bottom in order to see the forest for the trees, but it certainly is one of the most coldest shower you probably can have. Well, no, that's true. I mean, moving like that, your situation about moving to New York, I can relate to when I moved to San Francisco, which I thought was an amazing talent pool of people. 
yeah, I thought I was like this good photographer or something. And then suddenly I would be in a room with like 10 people who are all fucking great photographers who would like blow you away. And so that stuff is only good to be around, I think. But there is something about when things fall apart or things don't work anymore. I mean, it's interesting because, okay, right now we are in a period where no one has jobs. No, you know, there is a pandemic happening. And there's a lot of podcasts out with reps and agents and photographers talking about what to do with this time. And drink. The answer on this podcast is drink. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't sound positive, but I could see people doing that. (laughs) No, people were approaching it more philosophically. They were saying, you know, well, now is the time to reevaluate what you're doing and try to shift gears and various things. And there's no everyone has their own way to react to these things. And I think. I'm viewing it as a time that people may be suddenly saying, hey, what was working is not working anymore. Let's try to like reevaluate. Yeah, I think they are smart to be doing that. It's something I agree in because I don't think it's the photographers themselves hitting rock bottom. I think it's the publishing industry finally getting to the rock bottom. And I don't think that all the magazines especially are going to survive the other side of this coronavirus because a lot of them don't have more than two or three months of active capital to publish issues if they're not selling issues. That's just, that's just where we're at. Yeah. Now, I think it's going to level some things for sure. And yeah, I mean, it's been a, it's been a 15 year long leveling of things. And to be honest, it's their own fucking fault. I mean, the magazines are all exactly the same for the most part. The stories they're telling are very similar. You know, they haven't invested in talent for the most part. They're just doing the same things over again. And at the same time, it seemed like they didn't think the internet was going to be a big deal. I don't really know what someone expected to happen. I feel ignorant that I just was totally happy to wait by the phone for X amount of years for this to be all play out. And now I feel like a moron that I'm in this position now. I'm not stuck. I'm not a victim. I run my own company and my company can do whatever the fuck I want it to do. I can make pictures, I can make a movie, I can make music videos, I can make podcasts, I can write books, I can do whatever I want. We always all could at any given time. And if right now is the awakening that people needed to realize that, great. Hopefully my podcast can be a part of their being inspired to see themselves for more than just being, you know, solely a diver. Because I can guarantee you, the other side of this, there's not going to be many people who are solely magazine photographers. In the same way that we've built a career, at least I have mostly built a career of being a solely a magazine photographer, at least largely. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's just the economics are, are not going to work out for that. You know, we all need to reframe what's possible. We all need to see the bumps in the road as potential opportunities occasionally. I'm, I'm not going to do like a Jesus closes the door, he opens a window kind of thing. He or she opens a window. But I think we really need to examine what media is and where people are viewing media and what opportunities that creates. Because the other absolute truth of all this is that the other side of coronavirus and right now, people are looking at more pictures and more motion and more movies and more television shows and more media and more journalism than they have ever before. Even in the you know era of Donald Trump, everyone is so hungry for something new and better and interesting and engaging that's not going away. They just need to be fed a different way. I'm trying to build some of it myself. I'm trying to build the future to some degree, but that's out there and it will be right. You know, that demand will be met 
That's how demands work. You know, you and I had such a strong chunk of our careers in magazines. You went longer than I did. I feel like I wasn't a real magazine photographer for the past three years or four years. You know, I was doing other things. There is a, like when you were talking to Andrew, you were talking about like the golden age of magazines when the design was beautiful and the stories were great and the writers were great. And I loved that era. But it is interesting for my kids, like a magazine would come into the house. And for my kids to see a magazine, it's like they're seeing just the ugly supermarket circular that comes in that you just glance at and then throw away. Like, there's nothing about it that speaks to them. And I'm not saying because it's not designed beautifully or something like that. I'm saying the culture's changed. Like the idea of this like glossy printed thing that would come in or you'd buy at an airport or something like that. It does not speak to them. It's about whatever's on the screen. And so, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying that like the culture's changed. Absolutely. And part of what has to also change is the economics of digital content. Everything can't be free. This is not how it's going to work because it costs money to create something that's valuable. Oh yeah. You know, this freemium model we've been working under the subscription model, that's going to start breaking because it has to. Now everyone already knows everything about all consumers. They know where I am right now. And guess what? I've been happy to give that away for free because I'm not interesting. I don't do anything. I'm a dad. I'm, I'm, I'm in my basement right now. Google, you know, my, my basement right now. I already have a dehumidifier. I don't know what other basement items you can sell me, but I'm sure you'll figure it out. <laughs> and I'm okay trading that access into my private life for, you know, reduced costs of other things. However, the things that I find valuable, I pay for. And that's going to have to be the move forward into digital life. And, you know, these millennials who now have jobs and now are, you know, making money, the things they care about, if they want them to exist, they're going to have to start paying for them. Otherwise, they won't exist. Now, I don't think podcasts will become more paid for, but the advertising of podcasts will become much more robust. Oh, yeah. Because the, yeah. the listeners have just exploded. I think before the coronavirus hit, it was estimated there was like 850,000 podcasts. Now, only a small percentage of those, maybe 20%, have more than 10 episodes and have published a new episode in the last like six months. Mm -hmm. But I guarantee you, we went from 850,000 to a million during this pandemic. Mm. Mm. Because we're all stuck at home and we all got something to say. That's something that's absolutely true. We know, we know. The question is, who is going to steer the ship? And what role can photographers, commercial, editorial, or any other kind play in this next phase of media? I wish I was smart enough to know, but it's something we have to be thinking and building towards because it's not going to be a phone call you receive one day saying, hey, here's the new thing. There's going to be some brave people who are going to risk something and they're going to start showing people the way. One of the things that people are going to do, especially people who, as I've already stated, are kind and thoughtful, is that they're going to teach. And hopefully, to some degree, in the podcast, I've probably not taught anyone anything, but I've maybe hopefully said some names of people who are special that people can check out and go and learn something. And talking about the phases of your career, you have a new phase. You have a new hat you're wearing. You are now the associate director of the School of Photography at the Academy of Art in San Francisco. That is true. That is a very exciting and august title. I can't think of another person who is a better fit for a role in teaching. How has that been going so far? You know, it's one of those things that, 
Well, I, the first thing I would say is right now I'm a couple months into it. It's just a blast. And it actually, I'm enjoying it so much that I'm almost like, well, do I like this more than actually taking pictures or something like that? But I know that I'm someone who always likes what he's doing at the moment. You know what I mean? I'm not one who tends to look back and be like, oh, that those were the days. You know, I tend to like the new challenges of what's happening at the moment. But I definitely had mixed emotions before this job started, like after I accepted it and when I started of thinking, well, am I still a photographer if I do this? Am I a photographer? Is this once you become a full time teacher? Are you are you still a photographer? We tie ourselves in knot with this shit. We're so just on edge at all times. Like, well, what am I? Am I, am I enough? Who's going to figure out like what I'm doing and who's going to tell me I'm not this and not that. And that actually, no, absolutely that. And I would share these things with my girlfriend and she would be like, why are you worried about that? It's not like you're going to sell insurance or something like that. Like you're not working at home Depot, you know? Yeah. Also there's no licensing board for photography. <laughs> I mean, like nothing. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I think she was just would patiently listen to me and be kind of dismissive also of, of like, I don't even know why you're asking this. I know. I think that there was some, like a freelance photographer. There is this thing where you feel like you are pulling this thing off. You are juggling to stay in contact with everybody and you are struggling to do kick-ass jobs on assignments and all these things. And so there was something where I was like, is this going to be a good fit? Is it going to have the adrenaline that I'm used to? Is it going mm -hmm. to have the roller coaster that I think I like or something like that about freelancing? There was soul searching that was going on inside of me, but I had this opportunity. It wasn't like I could like say, well, I'm not ready for this now. Can I do it? Can I do it? Can I do it later or something? But there was this thing that I remember my girlfriend did say to me, she was like, hey, you know, you're the only one of your friends who still does what you do. You know what I mean? Like yeah. be, work as a freelance photographer. She's like, what do you think about that? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Well, not just does we do. We have to track back. You got started, like we said, the same around time I did. I've been the same thing for the last 25 years, basically. I mean, I started working professionally, quote unquote, getting paid to take pictures when I was 15. And I've done a couple other things, went to college, and then nothing else. This is it. Now, right. you know, you could argue, are you actually a professional parent now? Because that's mostly what you're doing half the time. Yeah. And that's not the word you would come to mind if you actually watch me parent. However, we're always trying to negate our realities and our value and what we actually have earned. There's so much just scratching and biting and clawing to get to whatever status you got to in photography. And there's so much fear that at any moment someone's going to say, yeah, you know, this guy was always garbage. And then you'd be like, yep, <laughs> you're right. You found me out. I was waiting. It took a long time, you know, 25 years, but you finally, you're yeah. right. You're absolutely right. I'll, I'll go, I'll leave through the back now. Yeah. I'll retire immediately. I'll resign immediately. Yeah. That, no, there is that. I would like to send clients who no longer give me work a resignation letter. That would be awesome. <laughs> like, yeah. What the fuck? Who yeah. is this guy? <laughs> I have resigned. Yeah, I've interpreted your silence and I've opted to resign. There was a thing, though, with teaching. Like before I took the job, I was teaching one class, a graduate class. And there was something that was powerful to me about it where for the first time I could be deep in photography, but it wasn't about me. It wasn't about me being the rock star or me being the 
cool photographer who supposedly impressed people with what I did or people thought was a great guy for 20 minutes in their office or something like that. It wasn't about, you know, Actually, like, I, I cannot you know, give away the great guy for 20 minutes role. That's my role, man. I want that. I want the, I want the song and dance title. Yeah. Like, yeah. Someone who thinks you're very charming for 20 minutes. As opposed to our, at least my wife, who does not find me charming for 20 minutes or longer. It's very hard to yes maintain yes. it for longer than 20 minutes. But suddenly I felt like I was just about photography and I was about other people's work. You know, I think also as a commercial photographer, you could open communication arts, you can open, look at the internet, you can open a workbook or any of these things. And you kind of can start to feel like, well, I've seen these pictures before. With students' work, you've never seen things like this before. Cool. And it has that, that rawness and that naivete and that let's just try this. And I think for the first time, I started to see photos that felt like, you know, the first time you saw Bruce Davidson's work or the first time you saw Arthur Tress's work or mm -hmm. someone who isn't as popular as Annie Leibovitz or the first time you saw like a Dwayne Michaels photograph or something. Yeah. There was that kind of wonder to these things that was exciting once again. That's interesting. Yeah, that's ex and that, that makes me excited to talk to you, you know, in another year, had that many more of those photographs and kind of have started to figure something out about what works for, you know, it's the, it was a fallacy of the, you know, the first time novelist and the young artist that there's this power. But I think it also tells us something about what has been this dark, jealous side of photography for the last 40 years, which is this award-driven culture and source book driven careers. You know, the other thing that will happen during this pandemic is that probably we're going to see the end, or at least, you know, the final hopeful depth knells of workbook and source book and agency access and all these people who've been trying to sell photography back to photographers at wildly inflated prices. We just didn't ever need that shit from anyone. We need to recognize good work and we need to see important work, but the world of photography is massive. So what one person thinks is amazing and important, someone else might, might find meaningless drivel. I wonder what this all will look like in a couple of years. If these gatekeepers in photography start falling away, if these young students, many of which won't necessarily want to become photographers, but will have something to say, if they start figuring out new ways to express themselves and new ways to share those expressions. What are we going to start seeing in media? What's it going to start looking like? Because it will start changing. Oh, absolutely. And that idea of the gatekeepers falling away or the gatekeepers changing. Like, did you read the book? Uh, it's a biography of Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone. It's called Sticky Fingers. Nice. I remember. I didn't read it. So fascinating story for the reasons you would think it's fascinating. But it ends with this idea of this Rolling Stone being this gatekeeper. There was a situation where they wanted to put Kanye on the cover in exchange for all this time for an interview. And I think Kanye was like, well, I don't want to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. Here, I'll, I'll just mock up my own cover of Rolling Stone and put it on Twitter, and that'll be it. And so this idea of, oh, well, that gatekeeper, no one cares about that gatekeeper anymore. And how yeah. suddenly it changes the dynamic. No, we're going to see that. And I don't know what shape these things are going to take. But I think we are seeing it. Like communication arts, which was the godhead of these kind of contests. I don't know if people even enter that anymore. I haven't entered it in a decade at least. And they, you know, they email me every year. They say, Oh, listen, you know, as a past award winner, I was like, I don't, I don't think I want, I want an award. I had to look it up. 
I won a communication art award like uh, in the 2010s or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, that's nice. But I do not see my photography in there at all. And it, it's expensive. Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't know, though, because I did in, in seeing it because yeah, it was this week that they had their call for entries. I was like, huh, I wonder when the last time I entered was. And then I did enter and I did actually get five images in two years ago or something. At another time in my life, that would have been a massive career shifting, yeah. defining yeah. thing. I didn't really remember it. And it was a very esoteric project. And I don't think anyone ever saw it. Part of the problem is we haven't even talked about is that communication arts doesn't have a relationship with the new generation of creative directors and art directors and art producers and photo producers. They're not looking at communication arts or black book or work. Actually, does black book even exist? I don't even know if it does. No, that does not. Or the book or workbook or why do they all sound exactly the same? Also, this is the same uh, men's magazine problem they have. They are not connecting with these people at increasingly small, tiny little digital agencies who are taking a larger and larger lion's share of work away from the large agencies of record of years past. Because those agency records of years past have been making 40% on these giant accounts forever. And those companies aren't going to pay it anymore. And so they're working with tiny little agencies to do individual projects at much lower price points. And that's what you're going to see moving forward. Oh, yeah. Now, will that be one size fit all? No. But that's a lot of what you're going to start seeing. I have already started seeing. So you're entering these contests because you want it to be in front of the right people. You can enter the contest, have great work, get awarded. Great. They don't have the mailing address for the people who have work to assign because the people who have work to assign are in their basement apartment in Brooklyn because they can run the whole agency from home. Right. There aren't somewhere where you can easily find them. And just like the, you know, the newest editorial photo editors, you know, they're 30 and under. They're not looking. They don't know. They don't know my name and they don't honestly right. need to know my name because their jobs probably don't rise to something I might even agree to. I don't know. We're seeing a generational shift and I need to do a better job at finding my people, my new people, my new relationships. And if they're going to still exist, these source books and these contests are going to have to do a much better job at actually making themselves relevant. Because right now, I think you're seeing the end of that era. Oh, I think I think it's probably going to end because now there's even new things like there's a new source book type of thing called it, it only exists on the phone. Do You know what I'm talking about? No, because my See, agents. I knew we went we went right to the source. What do you mean? The phone? <laughs> no, no, no. We went right to T.A. Give us all oh. the important information. Yeah, no, there is a new thing because my agents has us have us advertised in it and it looks like Instagram and it's primarily on the phone and then you can navigate around there and then they do events in the same way right. Workbook used to do events. And so at least there's someone paying attention. Now, this sounds like something that actually is owned by Workbook, but it's not there. They have a new name for it. <laughs> no, it does sound like that. But no, it's a bunch of a uh, couple agents. There was an agent who used to work for uh, Jagisha. She used to work for Shiat Day as an art buyer. And now she is a, a rep. She's behind this and it's called Commune. K O M Y O O. Oh, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't live in San Francisco. I probably don't even hear all the new startup names that you probably get inundated with. Oh, on right, a right, basis. right, right, right. Oh, yeah. But that one is a, whoo, that's a real, that's a real knuckleballer for me. It's a challenge. Yeah. It's, it's called Commune. With a K. I'm reminded about the word control and I wanted to ask you. 
in whatever way it makes sense to you before we let you go about any thoughts you might have on fatherhood, on photography, on creativity, on the role and push and pull between control and submission. I think when I'm being the best parent I can be, it's when I've submitted to that role and can actually quiet down my own selfish, ego-driven mania and just be in the moment. You know, I think something you said earlier was super fucking admirable and important. You said, I'm always really happy in whatever I'm doing. I'm always able, and I'm sure you're not always able anything, just like no one's always anything else. But the thing I tell my kids most often is to be happy as much as you can when you are living in the moment. When you're, if you can be happy just a piece of every day, you will live a happy life. To have enough and to realize we have enough is the gift we can give ourselves every day. Creatively speaking, just in life in general, being okay, giving the self, ourselves the space to be okay, and quieting down the things that are nagging on us, our fear and our stress, our ego. And so in the same way with being a father, I really try to think about being a father. I try to just be in my skin, not try to worry about the other ways in which I try to build value and just see my kids for being my kids and seeing what they're doing right now and enjoy that they are these flowers, you know, to be metaphorical about it. And they're just, they're there, they're running around. They're, they're, they're crazy little people. I have this connection to them. Isn't that great? Your kids are older. There are things in which they don't do anymore and things in which they now do. They're better and worse than where my kids are at. But does control and submission have any relevance to you and your creative or personal life? Yeah, in both. Like right now, Eli is 18. He's going to college. It's almost like that this period where we're all stuck in the house here, eh, I, I'm actually kind of savoring it because he's around and Wilson's around and I'm around. I'm not at the school and I'm not doing an assignment or anything. As a parent, when they were younger, the challenge was, I told you to stop that. I told you to stop doing that. I told you, I, I, I don't want you to hit that stick against the wall again. And right. that type of control thing never worked. And if there was any lesson that like Eli taught me in the whole thing was like uh, that approach, which is maybe some old school parenting thing or something my parents maybe would have done. Eh, it's not going to work here. It's got to be like unequals or something like that. And I think the only success I've ever had as a parent in this parenting thing was by, yeah, letting go of control. Probably in photography, I was the control guy. You know what I mean? In the beginning, I wanted to work with stylists and control everything and every little position. And then when I became a parent, I, I realized that oh, I was out the window. You know, I can't do any of that. I can't even think. And I remember there was a movie a documentary about Tierney Guerin. Do you know her work? Uh-huh. Yeah, I do. And I remember it really liberated me because it showed her like on the beach or at a park with her kids. And she would be like, like it'd be utter chaos. And the kids are doing all these crazy things and her camera's there. And then she's like, I told you to stop hitting your little brother. Come on now, put that down and drink some of that juice. And then she'd pick up the camera and make a photograph. And then you'd see the photo later and it was beautiful. And I remember seeing that and being like, oh, I don't need peace and quiet to make a photograph. I, I need to just accept this chaos as what it is. And then I'll just grab 125th of a second or something like that. But it's so funny. 
we're totally on the opposite sides here. I'm totally okay with the chaos of photo shoots. I like them to be chaotic. I like things to, I mean, like if important piece of gear were to break on set, which has happened, uh, Donald yeah. Trump actually knocked over one of my lights one time. Ooh, I don't give a shit. I'll just figure yeah. out another way to do it. I don't care. I honestly don't care. And I mean, right. my stuff's always been insured. It's not that I just don't like, I, I'll figure something else out. I'm willing to float down that path and to take what comes and to do my best with it. Now, am I always worried that I'm not going to do a good enough job and people are going to finally figure out they should never call me again and all the other, you know, stuff. Sure. I'm always spinning my wheels too, but I find it so much harder to let my kids be assholes and just actively be driving me crazy. And it's not even about them. It's about, I want my kids to be good kids. Like I really, it's about the future. It's about like, who are these kids going to be? I want them to understand like what it's not normal, but what is expected of them? Like what would a good person do in this situation? How do we show respect to others and ourselves? How do we demonstrate our thankfulness and just being grateful? How do we show our neighbors how important they are to us? How do we appreciate that we have enough? How do we demonstrate to ourselves that we can be charitable? I mean, I know that's a lot to, to drop on any kids. That's a lot. Yeah, but I don't expect all this from them. You know, and oftentimes I expect nothing and they show you what true charity is or true kindness is. And my daughter is extremely sensitive and empathetic and compassionate in ways which clearly came from her mother that I in skills I don't have. And so I'm, you know, I, I have the opportunity to learn from her. You know, my son is probably too young to even do some of this stuff, but he also is not young enough to be allowed to like smack his sister in the head whenever he wants to and totally not pay attention to his mom or I asking him to do really simple things which are totally in line with his age. He just lives in a very no consequences world. I wildly swing between loving how like no fucks he gives, like just doesn't <laughs> fucking care, doesn't care at all. Even when presented with like whatever is like, you know, maybe we'll be using this night. We're using the carrots. So we're like, listen, if you can't do this, then you can't have a dessert. He's like, I don't fucking care. And like, <laughs> and then we'll be like, we'll use the stick. And we're like, listen, if you do this, you're going to get whatever. And he's like, no, nope. <laughs> I know that he's my son. And I was not a great kid. Like I was very stubborn and willful and had my own thing. And that's cool. And I, I, I get it. It all will work out. I also know that too. I can't help but in the moment want to control it. And it's, oh, yeah. It doesn't work. I know it doesn't work. I still can't help it. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's these control and submission things. You know, I don't know if there's any answers here, but it seems like you've waded through some of this territory. Oh, yeah. I would say. I mean, parenthood is what dragged me into it, you know, and I think like this kind of came from my girlfriend, but the idea of kids come to us that like, they're their own people. They're their own entities. Like they're not necessarily habits of you or habits of your wife. Right. Eli is a force to be reckoned with that has no inkling of, of me, you know, or his mom, I think at all. When I kind of was able to embrace that idea, then I didn't see the kids as like a reflection of me or something yeah. like that. No, you're right. That's interesting. You know, I used to be like, wait a minute, people are going to think I'm bad if, you know, or I'm a bad parent or this is like, I'm like this. And then, yeah, and that's important to note. I don't care 
what people think about my parenting. I really care more about the kid itself that Zella and Jack know what it means to be good and not because good is good, but just like know, understand like the best choice here to be kind. The best choice here is to see someone who's having a tough day and to decide to be charitable. Best choice here would be to just bring it down a notch. I hope that we give them enough opportunity and my wife is really good at giving them opportunities to be crazy. And I, that's fair. And, you know, as much as it drives me crazy when they're super loud in the house because they've been, you know, banging off the walls and it's raining outside, blah, blah, blah. That's fair because they, you know, we haven't been able today to get them out of the house or we haven't been able because of what's going on to do X, Y, and Z. That's fair. I'm not someone who ever bought, was bothered by a kid crying on a plane. Kids are kids, you know, and it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I'd probably like to cry in planes more. Actually, I do cry in planes when I'm, if I watch a sappy movie, just whatever the, whatever the recycled air murders me. Oh yeah. But, uh, oh yeah. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. It sounds like a CNN segment. <laughs> All right. Racism. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, Timothy, oh, it's been goodness. an absolute joy. Thank you so much for coming on. I th- wish you very, very well with what will be a stellar teaching part of your career. I hope that you're able to continue to juggle your highfalutin fancy commercial jobs with your very sexy teaching responsibilities. See what I did? I, I, I showcased those in very fun adjectives. <laughs> Thank you, John. This was a blast. Cheers, buddy. My thanks to Timothy yet again. Learn more and buy his beautiful book, Echolilia, at echolilia.com. That's E-C-H-O-L-I-L-I-A. As always, love and respect to Scott Pryor, who made the music for this podcast. Listen to more at scottpryormusic.bandcamp.com. And as always, check us out on iTunes, rate and review, leave a comment. We'll talk to you guys next week. This is my dad's podcast, and it's called Eyeball. <laughs> Goodbye, you crazy animals.